while the while the little ones are scurrying off the class, I'd ask that you'd grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Titus. It's near the end of your Bible after Second Timothy. We're going to be looking at various verses in the book of Titus, but in particular, two passages. And I'd ask that you stand with me now as we read God's Word. We're going to be looking at Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, and chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. And three, three through eight. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your loving kindness that you have lavished upon us through your son, Jesus. We ask now that you would speak to us through your word, that you would be pleased to visit us and to exalt your son. In his name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Most of you already know me, uh, but for those of you who don't, um, my name is Rufus Williams, and I did something in the first service that would just be unfair to you if I didn't repeat it. <laughs> and that is that... Uh, I basically just threw away my introduction and kind of went off the cuff with the fact that I'm horrible at introductions to my sermons. Dan has told me this. Maybe not directly, but I tend to like to get right into the meat of things, you know, and just gloss right over the introductory comments and things. So, so my introduction this morning is that, that I'm bad at introductions. And um, I'm married to Chris Williams, too, by the way. I also mentioned that. Some of you know me, but you might know her better because of her activities and participation here. And, and um, I also embarrassed her during the first service, so it would be unfair to you if I didn't do that again. If 
by mentioning that I married an older woman. She's exactly four weeks older than me, and my birthday is in four weeks. She's not here for you to sing to her, and we didn't sing the first service, so don't even think about it, but I just want you to know that in case you do see her uh, or text her or whatever later on today. So our scripture passages today are from the book of Titus, and what I want us to do is look at Titus and these passages and consider God's grace in person. God's grace in person. That's the title of my message in case you're taking notes. But what is God's grace? What is God's grace? Please indulge me for a minute, and I'd like, I'd like for you to raise your hands if you've ever heard that God's grace is defined as unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Okay, thank you. Unmerited favor is a popular, traditional definition of God's grace. But God's grace is more than that, though that is a lot. Grace from God to us is certainly favor that is unmerited, but it also includes His loving kindness and His power. When the Apostle Paul asked for the thorn in his flesh to be removed in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, God told him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Grace is a word that is deep and wide with meaning in its biblical context, but this should not surprise us, since our own language adds elements of beauty and control to the meaning of the word. For example, we might say that a gymnast performed a floor routine with grace, or that a firefighter demonstrated grace under pressure. These uses don't mean unmerited favor to us, nor do they mean the same thing in each example. In its biblical context, grace, God's grace, is a word that encompasses favor, power, and condescending loving kindness and is understood to be intentional and purposeful. It is not accidental or random. And it has its roots in the Old Testament Hebrew concept of God's covenant love for his people. Why do we need to know the meaning of God's grace? Well, because in Titus chapter 2, we read that God's grace has appeared and that it teaches us but how has God's grace appeared? What does it teach us? And why? These are the questions we'll attempt to answer today from Paul's letter to Titus. So first, how has God's grace appeared to us? How has God's grace appeared to us? Well, I believe it's appeared to us corporately and individually. But depending on the translation that you're reading, verse 11 of chapter 2 reads in such a way that the grace of God has either appeared to all people or that the grace of God has appeared that brings salvation to all people. In either case, I think it's necessary for me to clarify the way in which God's grace has appeared to all humanity. For clarification, this verse is not teaching that all of humanity is automatically saved by virtue of God's grace appearing. It is teaching that there is no other source of salvation for humanity other than the appearing of God's grace. 
There is a singular source from which all humanity must receive God's grace. There is a singular appearing of God's grace. This is to say that there are not multiple appearances of God's grace that bring salvation to humankind. There are not multiple roads that all lead to the same God. There is only one. And this one appearing of God's grace is in the person of Jesus Christ, his son. Turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 in your Bibles, and I want us to look at a few verses there. John chapter 1, verse 1, and verses 14 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning Him. He cries out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So how do we see God's grace? How has God's grace appeared to us? It has appeared to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The Word of God who became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Who was full of the glory of God. Full of grace and truth. It is in this sense that God's grace has appeared to us corporately. Because there was and is only one incarnation, only one appearance of God in the flesh. But our faith in Christ and our knowledge of God are more than just a matter of historical experience. They are personal. God has made his grace known to humanity, but for those of us who know him, he has made himself known to us personally, individually. And he continues to do this. He does this through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whereby our dead souls are brought to life and the seed of faith takes root in the fertile soil of our hearts. Our eyes are opened to our foolishness and disobedience, and we suddenly see with unveiled faces the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we bow our knees before him. Then we find that something has sprung up within us. Like a river of living water flowing from our innermost being, we have the hope of eternal life. The promise of the resurrection. This is how God's grace appears to us as individuals. He meets us personally and he reveals himself to us 
as the lover of our souls. He shows us our sin and separation from him. He shows us the suffering and death of Jesus on account of our sin. Then he shows us his power in raising Christ from the dead and promising to raise us when Christ returns. And the more we gaze upon the work that he has accomplished through his son, Jesus Christ, the more we see his marvelous, amazing, matchless grace. So what does this grace teach us? What does his grace teach us and why? First, God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Why? Because it is for these things that Christ suffered. It was to redeem us from all wickedness and purify us for himself that Christ died. If we view God's grace as being revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, then we understand that his grace is not a license for sinning. His grace, his intentional, covenant, loving kindness for his people resulted in the incarnation, righteous life, suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus and will find its final result in the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, it says in this text. When he comes to judge the world with righteousness, and to glorify us as his people forever. And if we truly understand this grace, we understand that he accomplished this without our consent, desire, or input. Titus 3.3 that we read says, At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. This is who we were before the next verse, before the kindness and love or the grace of God, our Savior, appeared to our souls before our blind eyes were opened to see God's grace in person. This truth, this grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions because our faith is in a Savior who has rescued us from bondage to sin and death and made us heirs with him to eternal life. To say yes to ungodliness and worldly passions is to insult the Savior who bought us with his blood. Elsewhere, Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So what else does God's grace teach us? His grace teaches us, according to this text, it teaches us, it motivates us to live self-controlled, upright, 
and godly lives in this present age. And God's grace empowers us to pursue righteousness and makes us eager or zealous to do what is good. Now, some of your translations may say good deeds, good works, or do what is right. In any case, the point here is that we, as believers in Jesus, should be eager to do good. In fact, this phrase appears four times in Titus from chapter 2, verse 14, to the end of the letter. And I want us to look at each of these cases. Look at chapter 2, verse 14 of Titus. It says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. Chapter 3, verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. In chapter 3, verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Do we get the point? Four times, he repeats almost the exact same phrase in this letter. But for clarification, we should not think that this means as long as I do one good deed each day, I'm fulfilling God's command. On the contrary, the idea here is that our lives should be lived in the pursuit of what is morally right and good for others. This certainly includes volunteering our time to feed the homeless or to tutor a child but it is not limited to these specific acts. See, we have a way of segregating and categorizing our time that I believe is foreign to the Scriptures. Paul wrote this letter to Titus in the first century, and Titus was on the island of Crete. Now, imagine that you live on the island of Crete in the first century. There's no such thing as punching a clock. There's not a 40-hour work week. It doesn't work that way. You don't put in 25 or 30 years and then retire. That's not how it was. This is what Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. Obviously, Paul was not concerned about political correctness in writing his letters. He says, this testimony is true. They're evil brutes. They're lazy gluttons. Rebuke them. Tell them to do good. Get busy. He was concerned about the reputation of the gospel as demonstrated by the lives of the believers on Crete. 
That is, Paul wanted them to rise above the bad reputation that they had as Cretans and to live their lives, their day-to-day lives, in a way that brought honor to their glorious God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he expected them to do so by setting aside evil and doing good. For us, this means that we should be concerned with the reputation of Jesus in the work that we do every day and in the opportunities that we are given to do good for others, whether or not it's part of our normal routine. As Christians, we should have reputations at work or school or home as being the ones who are eager to do good, eager to help, eager to serve and meet the needs of others. Whether you are a stay-at-home mom, a business owner, or an employee, whether you work in the private sector or public sector, you should not segregate the good that you do as being something distinct from your daily responsibilities at work or home. Otherwise, you might convince yourself that being an unethical business person or a lazy employee is acceptable to Christ, as long as you volunteer one hour a week of your time teaching Sunday school. Now, I'm not saying that we don't need volunteers to teach Sunday school or other charitable activities. What I'm saying is that the good that you do should flow from who you are as a believer in Jesus Christ and should be evident in your life and permeate your everyday activities, whether you are at work, home, school, or volunteering. But why should we be eager to do this good? Why should we be eager or zealous for good deeds? Because our lives are no longer futile and pointless. And we should hope to demonstrate God's grace to others with our lives. Our motivation in life now has an eternal purpose and is centered upon pleasing the one who has redeemed us and purified us for his glory and our eternal good. Though this flesh will fail us and the dark cloud of death will one day appear over us, we know that our Redeemer lives and that our lives will continue beyond the grave and our faith will be vindicated when He returns and we are resurrected in eternal, immortal, glorious bodies that will live forever in sinless perfection and serve him in the new heavens and the new earth. Amen? Now I realize that there may be some here today who are not trusting in Christ. Some who have not seen God's grace in the face of Jesus Christ. To you I would say, You need not look any further. Trust in Christ for the salvation of your souls. Humble yourself before Him and cry out to Him for forgiveness. And He will save you. I also realize that there may be believers here today who struggle with the relevance of this message. Perhaps because you have no gross sin in your life right now like adultery or murder. You might even be thinking, 
How many times do I have to hear about God's grace? I get it already. Well, perhaps you do. But if you really get it, then you will understand that there is essentially nothing that is more important to the well-being of your soul than the constant reminder of God's grace toward you in Christ. To you who know Christ, I would ask that you examine your life. Do you regularly feed your soul with God's grace? Do you seek your satisfaction in Him? Do you find your purpose for living in Him? Does your soul long for Him as a deer pants for water in the desert? Do you find rest in His unfailing love? If you struggle to answer yes to these questions, then I would encourage you to humble yourself and diligently seek Him. To take a time out from the overwhelming electronic media entertainment of our day and spend some time interfacing with God's book. He gives grace to the humble. And He desires to meet with you and to make Himself known to you. Now I'm going to ask right now that you bow your heads and you close your eyes. And this is something that may seem awkward for some of you, but I'm gonna, I'd just like for you to close your eyes and bow your heads. Put aside all the distractions next to you. And I want you to picture in your mind's eye with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Picture the words, God's grace. Now imagine that those words begin to fade and as they fade, the silhouette of a robed man steps forward and then becomes clear to you. Imagine that you are looking at Jesus on the day of his resurrection, wearing a white robe with his arms by his sides and palms facing toward you. You can see the scars. Now he points at you and says, I am God's grace in person. I have redeemed you. I will appear again in glory to judge you. I have purified you from all wickedness, and I have made you an heir of eternal life. Consider yourself as dead to sinful passions and worldliness, but alive in me and eager to do good for my glory. I am your reward. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the grace that you have shown to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would enlarge our hearts to love you and our minds to know you. We're going to close with one final song. Thank you, Ruben.